Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. In this episode, we'll be discussing two works by Neil Gaiman. Uh, the first is the short story Pavain by Neil and some uh, other folks that we'll get into, which was originally from Secret Origins number 36 from January 1989. At least that's the cover date. So, uh, And then we also are doing Watching from the Shadows, which is a poem that Neil wrote um, in 2022, most likely. Yeah, and we're doing two works today instead of just, you know, one as we normally do because these are both short and so we can pair them up to make a, a single regular sized episode. I guess we'll, we'll we'll see how that how that works out, but also they are thematically linked. They both deal with Batman in some way. And in fact, the the first one, uh and I'm going to pronounce this differently than you are Brent, that way we're covering both bases. I'm going to pr- pronounce mm-hmm. it Pavon, which is I think what you would in French. We'll actually talk about what that means when we get to the end of that issue and are talking about the title and so on. But uh, I'm going to say Pavan. And Pavan is a comic issue in which Batman appears. And then we'll talk about what the second one is going to be when we get there. So I guess, Brent, just maybe give us the credits for this issue and then we can get straight into it. So uh, Neil Gaiman, writer, of course. Uh, illustrations are by Mark Buckingham. Letters on this by Augustin Moss. Colors by Nancy Houlihan. Um, the editor of this was Mark Wade. So I've just said that the two pieces we're talking about today are, you know, thematically linked because they are both about Batman. But we should say right up front that although this is about Batman's world, this is really a poison ivy story. In fact, it is a poison ivy secret origin story, which is uh, really cool. And the story does assume that you know you the reader know a little bit about poison ivy, but I am not sure Brent that we should assume that about our listeners. Because we definitely have a contingent of listeners who, you know, being here for Neil Gaiman, um, have not necessarily read any DC comics besides The Sandman before. And so to that end, let me just say that Poison Ivy is one of Batman's rogues, and she made her first appearance in 1966. And her deal is that she can control plants. She has a a poisonous touch, or at least, you know, a, a touch that's poisonous to humans. And she can also mind control people in a way that is often wrapped up with sexual attraction. And we are going to see all of this in this story. We'll get details as we go along. And when the story opens, Poison Ivy is not presently running around Gotham City doing supervillain stuff. Rather, she is safely tucked away in prison. And Poison Ivy is not really the protagonist of this story either. That is a mysterious man named Stuart who is here at this prison to investigate Poison Ivy to see if she should be transferred to another facility. And specifically, he is here to see if she would be a good candidate for something called Bell Reeve. Now, again, Gaiman does not explain what this is for people who perhaps are new to DC Comics or at least new to Batman, though I do think that, you know, this would be well known to regular DC readers. But perhaps thinking about people who are not regular DC readers, uh, we should perhaps you know, fill in the blank here. So, Brent, can you tell the rest of us what is Bell Reeve? Yeah. So, Bell Reeve in DC continuity is a federal prison um, located somewhere in the south. And uh, it is, it, it's a prison, but it's also the secret 
headquarters for Task Force X uh, and the Suicide Squad that uh, Amanda Waller runs. So the Suicide Squad, for those who are not familiar, um, uh, is uh, an effort by the U.S. government to uh, offer reduced sentences or even potential freedom to supervillains essentially for going on suicide missions on behalf of the U.S. government. Usually there's some kind of a collar or other mechanism that causes the villain's head to explode or then to otherwise be killed if they uh, go off book. Um, but it's uh, an excuse to oftentimes take B-level or C-level or D-level supervillains uh, uh, super from the DC continuity and have them, you know, do ultra violent stuff and let you kind of root for them in the very much very anti-hero kind of way, just directly, like literally these are not heroes. These are the villains. Um, uh, it's an excuse sometimes to have some fun at, uh, killing off, uh, ridiculous villains from DC's continuity. But then it's also an excuse to have comics that star people like Harley Quinn and others, um, when they sometimes are part of this group. So, um, it appears to be that the, Ivy is under assessment as to whether she would be an appropriate person to go to Belle Reve and then therefore to be part of the Suicide Squad um, if she is kind of uh, controllable enough and um, not so much of a loose cannon that, you know, she potentially could be utilized by the U.S. government um, in ways that uh, seem really illegal, by the way. And what a crazy job this character Stuart has. Like, what's the application process for this for this job and so on? I mean, I think we can assess, I think we can suss out that it's not a job you apply for, right? It's a you're already working in the intelligence services and are recruited for this job. But uh yeah, it's not a job that I would want to have. Uh it's not. But now that we're talking about it a little bit, I kinda wanna see there was a Netflix show called Mindhunter that uh, David Fincher produced about FBI psychological analysis people um based on some factual truth behind some of that. Um I kinda wanna see a uh fictional version that is done of uh Mindhunter, but of people trying to find people for uh, the Suicide Squad of just interviewing various um uh disturbed personalities that are supervillains and trying to assess what is the root cause of that and how easily we can manipulate those individuals going forward. So um, there'd be a lot of fun and darkness to that, but also essentially, I mean, I guess it could be a television show. It could also just be a play, frankly. I guess I'm just describing also just two people sitting across the table and talking, but one of them maybe controls plants. How much of that sort of thing uh, appeared in the recent-ish Suicide Squad film that uh, I did not see? Uh, very little. There were some conversations and stuff, but uh, more often it's just like, okay, we're going to go. Um, in fact, the uh, I did not see the second to most recent, but the most recent one uh, uh, I do have to recommend if you're in the mood for a kind of – slapstick action kind of comedy. Um, uh, there's, you know, some bits that are, don't quite work as well as, uh, uh, the director would have hoped, but, uh, I think that it works well enough if you're in the right mood. All right. Well, I'll return us here to the the issue at hand, which actually does do exactly the sort of thing that you're just asking for, Brent, because uh, this story really is about this extended multi-day interview between Stewart and Poison Ivy while Stewart decides if Poison Ivy can, in fact, be useful here in the Suicide Squad. And the files that they have on Poison Ivy are inconsistent about her backstory and you know, loads of other details as well. And hey, yeah, this is a secret origin story, so we are going to get some of that cleared up. That's really the purpose of this issue. 
And for example, the file says that Poison Ivy developed her powers when a Frenchman named Legrand fed her some strange and poisonous Egyptian herbs, uh, but somehow she became immune to them. But Poison Ivy says that uh, this is a story that she herself made up. But obviously there's something meta going on here, right, Brent? This is the original origin story of Poison Ivy, the one that Neil Gaiman is shortly about to uh reinvent. And uh, where does this come from? There's some fun going on here in terms of, and in a lot of the Secret Origins comics that were running in the late 80s, in which Neil has an opportunity to reinvent Poison Ivy's background in part because uh, the crisis on Infinite Earths crossover that occurred in the um, early mid 80s did away with a lot of DC continuity and kind of crushed things together. And so gave an excuse, as we've talked about in some other podcasts, an excuse to kind of redo origins and you could like keep what you want, throw out what you don't like, try to reconcile things that were inconsistent if you want to keep both of those bits, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the original story that she talks about here where her name was Pamela Isley, she was seduced by Mark Legrand, as you said, um, and was supposed to help steal an Egyptian artifact, uh, artifact and uh, then he was feeding her poison, but it didn't actually kill her. It just made her immune to all poisons. That was the original 1966 and then retold the 1978 origin of the character. What Neil gets to do in this issue is present at least Ivy's and some question about the reliability of the narrator here, but Ivy's retelling of her own origin and pull in things that Neil decided he wants to pull in to kind of reinvent the character and what he presents here actually more or less kind of holds even through future kind of continuity reboots that DC has gone through for over the last decades in which we have some substitution that Legrand is not the person involved. Uh, someone else is who we'll get to. Um, but that's kind of the origin there. And, there. and there's a brief mention in here where there's a discussion about what is her name even? Cause it's, is it, is it Pamela, Pamela Lillian? Is it Lillian Isley? Is it? And she's like, no, no, it's Pamela Lillian Isley. There's a reference to a rose uh, possibly being her name, and that actually was an error that was introduced at one point where one of the writers called her Lillian Rose as if presenting her name for the first time, uh, separate from being her gnome de plume poison ivy. Perhaps uh, people think forgetting the fact that she in her first appearance was given the name Pamela Isley. So she had a name. So uh, people kind of went with it and just kind of ignored the fact that, you know, someone had kind of flubbed um, and that flub sometimes was there, sometimes not. So here's also an attempt to be like, no, no, here's how I'll combine all these things and, you know, smooth over the pavement. Yeah, it's not easy being a comics editor, right? In this sprawling, sprawling universe of DC Comics and Marvel Comics. It's a tough job to keep track of all of that, and things do slip through the cracks. And But that's fun here, then, because it's actually fodder for Gaiman to you know address all of that. And Gaiman, I think, always strikes me as having this encyclopedic knowledge of, of, of DC Comics, which is just in, incredible, right? And, and particularly, you know, it's easy nowadays for, I think, all of us to look at and be like, well, why didn't you just, but it's just one of those particularly not just pre-internet, but pre like personal computers, like you would have to physically bring up from like, you know, the DC vault and read all of the comics that she appeared in to know the character. You can't just, you know, hit Google or hit any other kind of database and just look it up. This is not something that is existing. So it's, it's the responsibility of the editors and writers to do what they can. 
And, you know, there's slips every so often. And frankly, the name that is not used except for one panel of a character, um, when really we're going to call them Poison Ivy most of the time, eh, probably less important, frankly. Um, I do want to mention a little bit about the character. Glenn, you, you had mentioned that, you know, first first appearance was 1966. Um, in doing some research for this episode, I discovered that the uh, impetus for that creation was um, that the Batman series running on TV uh, led to a big push for more Catwoman-esque kind of villains in the continuity for Batman to face. So particularly leaning into kind of the seductress side of things. And so that was a lot of the origin of the 66 character was we need to have kind of a, a femme fatale, um, particularly who may, you know, try to seduce Batman um, or at least seduce Robin because Batman's willpower perhaps is too strong, depending on the story that's going on um, to kind of, you know, bring in that kind of a, a appeal of, you know, kind of a slightly different kind of story um, in that way. Um, and also just add a lot more kind of sex appeal to Batman stories and comics. Um, and so Poison Ivy oftentimes does a great job of leaning into um, kind of sex appeal and issues surrounding sexual arousal and other things, which um, frankly, you know, her being connected to botany, you know, there's a lot to say about the fact that I think Biology classes tend to teach about sex oftentimes by starting with, let's talk about parts of a flower, right? So that's just a lot about Ivy. But it, it, it ends up with a lot of stories where sex is very much front and center. And that's what we get wonderfully in this uh, secret origin story that Neil gives us. And the inspiration for Poison Ivy, like her characteristics, is an older story. It's a 19th century weird fiction story that actually is a romance. It's actually a love story. I don't know if you've read this story, Brent. It's uh, Rappuccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This is actually a story that Brandon and I covered oh, probably two years ago at this point over on Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast. It was a, a story that was chosen by our listeners. And uh, I think we probably spent at least a quarter of that episode just making Poison Ivy jokes because it was so obvious. <laughs> the inspiration for <laughs> Poison Ivy. Uh, and But in particular, this early origin story, this early version of Poison Ivy, where she's been slowly uh, you know, being fed poison by this older male authority figure in her life. That's the same thing that's happening in Rappuccini's daughter. I mean, the story is even, you know, it's actually about the daughter of the person who is poisoning, but her name doesn't even appear in the story because we're interested in him as a mad scientist. And of course, this has a, a tragic uh, tragic ending. You know, it's a tragic love story in which the, that involves the, the poisonous touch you know, poisonous kiss and all of that sort of thing. And uh, um, I recommend that story. Actually, Brandon and I both really love that story. But uh, also, you could just check out that episode without having read the story. If you're interested in gaining some more insight on, you know, the origin of Poison Ivy as a character. And I don't remember many details about that story. I remember reading it uh, decades ago. I do think it was one of the few stories from Hawthorne that I grudgingly liked. So uh, there is my glowing praise of that story because <laughs> I actually dislike most of his writing that I've read. So, um, so yeah, definitely worth a check out. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's most of us, right? Because we were all forced to read The Scarlet Letter at some point. But actually, as an adult, mm-hmm. all of the Hawthorne that I've read, including Rappuccini's Daughter, have been stories that I've I've really loved. In fact, I'm hoping that we'll do more Hawthorne over on Elder Sign. But uh, that's not where we are right now. We're on Hanging Out with the Dream King. So let's get <laughs> back to the actual Poison Ivy, as opposed to the inspiration for Poison Ivy. And yeah, we'll carry on here. So Gaiman is now going to give, as you said, Brent, he's going to give Poison Ivy a new post-crisis origin story. And what she tells Stuart now is that she was a graduate student in botany under Jason Woodrow, who you and I have spent a lot of time with on our Swamp Thing bonus series on Patreon. But I will just summarize here that Jason Woodrow is also known as the Floronic Man and is a a villainous plant person, we'll say. Gaiman really only gives us one more detail, actually, about the origin of Poison Ivy's powers, which is to say that Woodrow was experimenting on her and that the experiments killed the person she was and created Poison Ivy. And then to wrap up the origin story, at least as it appears here, Ivy tells us that she then moved to Gotham City because she had a uh, a crush on Batman, we'll say. And in fact, she even tried to woo him, but it did not go well. And... Now she is here in this prison, and she has skipped over in this telling. She has skipped over her life of supervillainy because, right, she's angling for release or at least angling for better for better treatment here. Uh, she's not going to get it, of course, but she does put the superpower moves on Stuart after he's shown her a bit of kindness. And so in the end, Stuart's recommendation is that Poison Ivy not be included in the Suicide Squad, but rather be transferred to... Arkham Asylum, where we have been before in the the Sandman. And that is really about it for this issue. I have skipped over a a romantic subplot with a prison guard so that we could keep the focus on Ivy here. But I will say, Brent, I really like this story. This is the first time I think that I've ever wanted to know more about the character of Poison Ivy. And so maybe just to lead into a discussion, Brent, I'll start just by asking, you know, where I should, or or, maybe where listeners should go to read some more about this character. Like what's a good story arc that focuses on Poison Ivy that you recommend? This is kind of a tough one because I have not read some of the recent Poison Ivy kind of standalone series. Uh, It's gotten good reviews, so that's probably a place to check out, but I can't personally say for sure it is. Um, I will say in current continuity, a lot of Poison Ivy stories are wrapped up with Harley Quinn stories. So that's places to look. I also remember fondly in the – I think it was the early aughts, there was a um, a – continuity thing throughout a lot of the bat comics uh no man's land where there was a big earthquake and as a result like a lot of damage was done to gotham city and the federal authorities decided briefly this was like a 12 month arc kind of thing that like yeah we're leaving gotham forget it we're not going to care we're going to close it off we're going to seal it off and not care and that's actually the um for those of you familiar with the uh, the nolan films uh that is somewhat of the uh, inspiration for, you know, Bane having uh, Gotham sealed off is from the No Man's Land run, where then villains basically took over parts of Batman and Batman basically decides to stay behind. But literally, there is no normal kind of modern civilization. So let's then do kind of a post-apocalyptic sort of view of Gotham. Um, and in that storyline, in the No Man's Land storyline, uh, Poison Ivy uh, takes over a large park and I think part of the zoo and then 
also decides to take care of orphans. Um, I will say that <laughs> Poison Ivy started as, as we talked about before, kind of a you know Catwoman analog, right? So the sexy, seductress, um, slightly superpowered, you know, jewel heist, rob the bank villain, right? Which is you know typical of your 1960s supervillain. Over time, she's very much morphed into uh, leaning into um, and even calling herself frequently an eco-terrorist, where her arguments are similar to those that we discussed um, when talking about Jason Woodrow in terms of um, trying to defend uh, nature. Um, and uh, oftentimes her targets are, uh, you know, corporate polluters. Um or or if she's still trying to collect money for herself, it's because she wants the money so she can go buy a private island and be left alone. Um, so it's partially their personal isolation or protecting wildlife in some way. And then oftentimes when she does more barbaric things and you know kills people um, or otherwise traumatically harms them, it's justified because of the damage that they've done to plant life. Uh, she also then has wildly different power sets from just like, no, no, I can put on special lipstick and then by kissing you, you briefly are charmed by me to uh, essentially being an analog for Swamp Thing. And in fact, she's uh, had interactions with Swamp Thing and been uh, in the modern continuity. She is connected to the green and sometimes she even is, you know, representing the green when it's feeling a little bit more like fighting back against people kind of um, so. Uh, there's a few places to look, but there's not – I really struggled to think of like where's a good standalone Poison Ivy. But again, uh, there was a story recently and I just uh, – dear listeners have not had a chance to read that. If you're interested in Glenn and I covering that, please let us know through normal patron channels and uh, we will maybe consider that for the future. Yeah, I would love to to cover that. I also have really stopped – keeping up with current comics for lots of reasons. One of them, of course, being we we do so much reading for the podcast network, but the other being I don't live across the street from a comic book shop the way I used to. Although I am I am currently drinking my coffee out of the uh the mug that I have from that shop, though that shop sadly did not survive COVID. So this is actually our second foray into the world of DC superheroes. We've actually had a lot of fun, I think, on this interlude from Sandman covering that. I really, really loved covering the Justice Society. That was awesome. That was one that you and I had just decided to, to do because it had come up in Season of Mist. This one, however, was chosen by our Patreon supporters, but that meant that just serendipitously, we got two you know, dives into the DC superheroes pool here. I really enjoyed this uh, this story a lot. How did you find it? Yeah, I really enjoyed it a lot too, Glenn. Um, and it, to me, its success is what's best about particularly the Secret Origins run uh, as it was going on. Um, and I have to admit to, to, to you and to the listeners, when I first got into collecting superhero comics um, and collecting in the most nebulous of ways, because I wasn't in it for the money, I was in it for the stories, which is, in my opinion, how you should collect things. Um, but uh it was oftentimes to pick up the Secret Origins comics, the ones that were on the shelves, as well as the back issues, because they were not, they were almost never first appearances of anything. So you never were having to pay egregious markups. Sometimes even you'd be paying less than cover um, if it was old enough. Um, but it was great bite-sized bits of here is a story about it. Um, and if it left you wanting to know more about the character, it made you then want to go seek out 
appearances by that character in kind of the comics as they're coming out. And that was kind of the success in some ways. It was almost like mini trailers for <laughs> the other comics, but the trailers of the modern sense where it's here's footage that doesn't appear in the film. Um, and as you said, like this story for you kind of left you wanting to read more poison, poison Ivy stuff. And that similarly worked for me. And this is a comic that I actually had picked up at the time, um, in part because I was grabbing secret origins left and right. Um, where I found them uh, frequently when you go on vacation, um, which I still frequently do. Uh, you look for the local comic book store and then, you know, I'm getting the current comics from my home store. So, but I wanted to support the local store. So you hit their back issues and um, secret origins was just a place to go to like, be like, well, which, which are ones I don't have yet. Um, and so this is one I picked up. Not being even that familiar with Neil's work at the time, uh, the draw for me was A, it was Secret Origins, and B, it was Green Lantern, and I was really into Green Lantern comics at that time. So this is the 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 this is the B story was the Poison Ivy story. The A story in this particular issue of Secret Origins was actually the Secret Origin of Hal Jordan, which was probably the fifth telling of that one, but um, <laughs> and probably not the first one I had even like even owned, let alone read. But uh, still happy to have it, and this was kind of a nice additional thing. Uh, but again, it, it does a nice job of wanting you to want to know more. The other thing I really like is it's a great excuse in the post-crisis for Neil to not only revamp what do I want to Poison Ivy be, but also to kind of – it's not even paying homage. It's directly linking up the continuity of Poison Ivy to what he loved about Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run, which brought him into – really appreciating what could be done in the comics media and as it did for most people, Alan Moore Swamp Thing being such a, a wonderful thing. And you can listen to our patron episodes about that if you want to hear us wax on about how great that run was. But this is a great way to hook up the continuities in that way, which is something that, you know, Neil does a lot of in Sandman, particularly in the first kind of arcs or two, but he does it a little bit sprinkling later. Let's switch tax now, Brent. You you brought up the materiality of this issue, and I'm delighted to to realize that you actually own this as a single issue, because yeah, this story did appear in a volume of Secret Origins that also then featured, as you say, the story about Green Lantern. And what that means is that the cover has Poison Ivy pressing up against Green Lantern in a a, a sexy way, which does not actually appear in our story. But I, you know, the cover is reprinted here in this volume. I saw that and said, "Wow, what? Where is this going?" And was really kind of on edge the whole issue, especially as I'm getting close to the end. I'm like, <laughs> Green Lantern isn't here yet. How is he going to show up in this story? But uh, he doesn't. That's not actually what's happening here. Yeah, he doesn't. And frequently, I mean, that's what you do with your covers where you've got a bunch of people together um, who don't necessarily appear on the panel together. But it's it's it, the fun bit of the Secret Origins covers to me is the winky like it's almost as if like, okay, you're going to be in Rolling Stone this month. So come in for your photo spread. It's just like Poison Ivy, uh, Hal Jordan as Green Lantern. Uh, yeah. Could you show up at noon and we're going to need like three hours for the photographer to get photos and uh, let's get one where you're maybe kissing him. Let's okay. Now uh, a little <laughs> bit more sexy. Okay. Now how uh, could you look less frustrated? Okay. Could you look um, less you know, okay, now you're looking a little bit too much into it. Um, yeah, it's a great cover. It's kind of a close up. It's a very kind of intimate but playful moment. Uh, he is raising his power ring, um, kind of in a slightly defensive uh, manner and seeming kind of off put by this. Um, but she's just, uh, looks like she's just having fun, uh, frankly. 
Yeah, I liked I liked the cover as well. I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, let's talk about the titles. We promised we would at the top of the show. So Pavan is it's a dance. It's an early modern European dance, and specifically, it's a dance for two people. This term Pavan has survived, you know, long after the dance. Nobody does this dance anymore. But it's a, a type of classical music now. So you know, people are continuing to write music for this type of dance, or or you know, write pavans, I should say, even if it's not actually for the dancing. But it really is not the music that Gaiman is invoking here. It really is the dance, and it's you know, a metaphor for. Ivy's relationships, I think, with all of the men that appear in this story. So certainly it's, you know, what's happening here is this extended interview with Stewart. It actually appears in the text in talking about her relationship with Batman, but I think we can extrapolate it to her relationship with Woodrow as well. And I love because her discussion of her relationship with Batman, um, and it's, you know, the looking at the dance as a form in terms of a kind of a processional dance, typically fairly slow. And so thinking not about kind of the quick fisticuff actions of Batman fighting poison Ivy, but more just kind of the slow relationship, you know, you know, taking each other by the hands in some ways, you know, maybe to put cuffs on them. If you're Batman uh, and if you're poison Ivy, then, um, you know, uh, otherwise, and it's 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 kind of a fun uh, allusion to the way she at least is trying to tell the story of her relationship with Batman, um, uh, for what it's worth. Although I think that there's a lot of cracks we get in terms of like perhaps she's aware that she is telling a fictional story here, yeah, or at least a a highly romanticized kind of <laughs> yes romanticized is, is great i was gonna say curated uh yeah she's left she's left a lot out and i think that if we asked batman what metaphor he would use for their relationship while she was on her crime spree and also trying to use her her powers to um woo and seduce him i'm not sure that uh 16th century or 17th century dancing is the the metaphor that he would use but we can see where the character of ivy as gaiman has written her here would think about it that way. And I, I think it's a great title for all that. Uh, what was your favorite panel, Brent? So my favorite panel was um, on page eight of the story, page 15 in the collection that we're working from, in which she's telling the history of, you know, kind of her connection with Batman. And we, we have this, you know, jubilant picture of her being, you know, kind of a fangirl of Batman very much. But then in the middle of the page, we get this panel of Stuart, um, on video camera saying, you're talking about Batman here because he's looking for clarification. And then there's a stiff jawed Batman um, with a really great kind of cape with some, you know, great shoulder spike things going on. And it says, the narrator says, there's a green fire behind her eyes. And suddenly, momentarily, I'm afraid of this woman. And then it shows a close up of her eyes on video camera where she says, yes, I'm talking about the Batman. And until this point in the narration she's showing, there's just kind of this happy young woman who just is like talking about her first love and, you know, how much she just, you know, just loves him and stuff. And here we see the crack of her being annoyed that someone is interrupting the story she is telling. Um, and again, definitely some fictionalization going on here. Um, and we see this Ivy, the frustrated, angry, I just want to get out of here. Ivy much later in the story, but this is one of the first moments where we see her kind of dropping the ruse briefly of, um, 
you know, I am the, 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 the doughy eyed, you know, misunderstood young woman, um, who, if only, you know, uh, you could take me away from here and help me, then that would be great. And, you know, perhaps you'd get romantic benefit to that. Um, instead it's just like, no, no, this is someone who, uh, is angry and frustrated and, uh, does not want to be interrupted. And, um, we see kind of the dropping of the facade here. And I just, I, I love the transition and I love that it's done through as if it's the lens of the video camera, which early in the story, he's not sure she, does she know she's being watched by a secret hidden video camera? And later in the story, yes, yes, she does. She's been playing to it all the time because she's playing you just like all of the female guards and staff at this women's prison know that men will be played by poison Ivy. So, um, yeah, that's my favorite panel. Yeah, these eyes are are truly terrifying here. And uh, I, I've, I've made things easy for us. Or I guess you've made things easy for us by going first, because my favorite panel is, in fact, the one right above, uh, right above <laughs> this one, where it is Poison Ivy in grad school, in her uh, apartment that is covered in Batman posters, like different types of Batman posters. She's wearing a Batman shirt. When I was in grad school, my roommate, or one of my roommates, I should say, uh, she and I lived in an apartment that we, in fact, dubbed the Batcave because it was covered in Batman posters because she loved Batman. I love Batman too, but she loved Batman, I think perhaps an order of magnitude even more than I love Batman. We both had Batman shirts that we frequently <laughs> were, were donning at the same time. And, uh, this picture just really reminded me of that roommate who's of course one of my, you know, one of my dearest friends. I snapped a picture of this and uh sent it to her, you know, with some sort of caption of like I found you in a comic book and um, you know, the response was yes, I, that's exactly. And it actually does even kind of look like uh my roommate. So, um I've picked this one entirely for uh for personal reasons and just coincidentally too, serendipitously, uh I even received or I guess we both received an email this morning from uh, another really dear friend of ours from that that time with photos of her children dressed up as Batman as well. So this is just <laughs> deep roots in my grad school experience. And this just, this looked like Gaiman had sort of somehow seen into my life. Well, I think on that note, let's move into our second piece for this episode, which is Watching from the Shadows, this poem by Neil Gaiman. Brent, what's the, the publishing credits, the publication information for Watching from the Shadows? So Watcher from the Shadows, uh, I believe the only place it exists in writing is in this uh, 80 Years of Batman Deluxe Edition that came out in uh, 2022 um, for the history of Batman. Neil did read this at a number of speaking engagements throughout the year 2022, um, usually with a preface where he apologized for those who do not care at all about Batman at all. So uh, this has this wonderful poem kind of as the uh, end of it after a collection of uh, other Batman comics and a brief discussion of history. I will mention um, there is not a lot of art here, but there was some art surprise, uh, supplied by Mark Chiarello. Um, in some of the margins and the lettering is done by Todd Klein, who does a lot of lettering for Neil Gaiman work for DC, particularly um, most of the Sandman run, I believe. Um, so, uh, and I really like his lettering. So it works real well. Um, the presentation here I also will mention is white letters on a black pages, um, uh, inversing things uh, and working well then for the walk, uh, watching from the shadows. Right. I mean, the whole thing felt like in some sense, I mean, just visually was like reading 
Morpheus talking, right? Reading dream <laughs> talking. And yeah, I love that Klein did the lettering here. It just felt comfortable and familiar to me. I really, really love this. I do think that this is available also, Brent, in a non-deluxe version of this that was uh, out in 2019. So it can be, mm. uh, I think, had, I mean, it, you know, it's basically the same thing, but uh, yeah. can be that can be found for a little, uh, a little more cheaply, I guess is what I'm trying to say here. So yeah, let's get into what this is though. So as we've said, this is a poem, but it is a poem in free verse. So I think we're just going to talk about the content rather than the form here. And essentially, what this is, is a poetical account of Gaiman's relationship with Batman, beginning with the classic Adam West TV show that we've, or at least I have just learned, was the impetus for the creation of Poison Ivy in the comics to begin with, and then moving into reading comics, and then in his early 20s, reading Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns as it was hot off the press. And then, of course, getting to write Batman stories himself, some small bit of which, of course, we have just talked about. So, Brent, what stood out to you the most about this piece? There were a few things that stood out to me. Um, I really enjoyed it, first of all. There's just a lot of great references to the visuals of Batman and the iconography a little bit of Batman, but without going to a lot of detail. It very much is a Batman poem for people who already are on board with Team Batman, right? Um, it really is, uh, as his preface for his live things go, if you do not care about Batman, this will do nothing for you. Um, but in particular, he throughout the work will reference a lot of Batman creators over the years. Uh, notably, uh, while some of those creators were writers in addition to illustrators, in most cases, or, or in all cases, they were um, illustrators and pencilers. And um, and even when they were writers, they were considered illustrators and pencilers kind of first. Um, so it's very much the visuals of Batman um, versus uh, referencing kind of some of the authors of Batman, the only like strictly author of a Batman story who is at all mentioned in the poem, um, who is, did not also do art of Batman is a brief mention of Harlan Ellison. And it's not to mention Harlan's Batman story, uh, which is also in this particular collection. Um, but it's to mention Harlan being upset with Neil about something that Batman does, um, about his kind of abuse of, um, and disrespect for, um, some civil rights, civil liberties issues. Um, and how that doesn't work for Harlan Ellison. So there's just a lot of kind of reference to the visuals. There's also references to the fact that like on the one hand, Batman is kind of unchanging. On the other hand, the references we get here are the constant many faces of Batman. And in fact, the art styles are so radically different between what you'll see from any of these, from the initial art done by, um, you know, Bill Finger um, and um, to some minor extent compared to how much he uh, contractually gets credit for Bob Kane. Um, and then, um, other people who then, uh, actually did Bob Kane's work for him. Um, which, um, is references here. Uh, Lou Sayer Schwartz, uh, is called name checked specifically along with Bill Finger. Uh, Lou Sayer Schwartz is someone who basically ghost did all of the or a lot of the work for Bill, uh, for Bob Kane, uh, during his run, not just on Batman, but other things. Um, and so essentially did not get credit for the work, but then, you know, got paid and then Bob Kane took the credit, um, which is a lot of what Bob Kane does. Uh, but there's references to then, you know, Frank Miller, um, who obviously, you know, wrote the dark Knight stuff. Um, but also his wonderful 
work he does there and Jim Aparo and Neil Adams and uh, Bernie Wrightson. These are all great, but kind of different takes on Batman over time. I also will mention, I think Neil Adams had passed away um, shortly before the uh, first um, appearance of this. So that might've been part of the impetus um, or I might have my dates messed up and it might just be, he passed away before Neil started reading this on the road. Um, so that might've been something going on, but uh but there's just a great bit about how Batman, on the one hand, is unchanging, um, but on the other hand, changes all the time. But if you don't define him well, he kind of stays as a kind of fluidly what you need him to be in the room kind of presence. So, but what struck you, Glenn? Yeah, well, I agree with you here, Brent. There's a real appreciation for the breadth of Batman as a character, but also Batman as a series of stories. And I think what I love the most about this is Gaiman talking about the way in which reading Batman was a catalyst for his own self-discovery, where reading Batman is how he learned that he liked horror. Uh, reading Batman is how he learned that he liked mysteries because he read different writers doing different things with Batman. I think that is one of the beautiful things, not just about Batman, but about serialized stories more broadly, but you know, superhero comics being a fine example of that. For me, at you know the ages that Gaiman is talking about himself here, that was Star Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation, specifically as this serialized story that told sometimes horror stories in which Beverly Crusher has weird romantic relationship with the, a ghost that also had a weird romantic relationship with her own grandmother as a gothic horror story, and also has mysteries, hard-boiled detective mysteries, cozy mysteries, uh, well, actual Sherlock Holmes <laughs> role-playing mysteries, and so on. And that's something that was really important to me at the the age you know that Gaiman is talking about this being important to him as 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 well and so I really you know that resonated with me but I also really appreciated that because I do think that this is an awesome thing that these types of 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 characters or these types of franchises can do when they are telling serialized stories is that they're they're gateway stories right that they they can launch all of us on these voyages of self-discovery and serve to introduce us to the broader deeper world of stories and storytelling and for Gaiman obviously that lit you know a huge fuse that is you know paying dividends for the rest of us right in the audience of the stories that he is writing and so I'm so really grateful for for that and I just you know I felt how emotional this was for him that really jumped off the page for me and I really love how the character of Batman is so strong that you know, while I can't hook up in continuity the Adam West television serial, you know, Batman with Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns, I don't need to because they're both equally valid Batman, right? Those are both Batman stories. They're both things that I loved at different points in my life. Um, and they're things that I, I like a lot. Um, it, it, reading this reminded me a lot of um, Glenn Weldon. Uh, wrote a book on the history of Batman, the Cape Crusade, and Batman and the Rise of Nerd Culture. I recommend those who want to read more about Batman and kind of the um, and Glenn's thoughts on particularly his own relationship with Batman over time um, and what he saw going on in terms of nerd culture and you know the strength of Batman as a character um, and also some of the toxicity regarding some minor parts of the fan base. But there's a great bit about like me remembering very fondly those Batman. Adam West, you know, television show. I can't watch any of that again. <laughs> like I, that's not, but at the time I loved it and I loved watching the old 1980s 
you know, Justice League cartoons, um, Super Friends, um, and seeing Batman there. And like, my brain was fine reconciling why Batman was on a satellite with Superman. And then he was fine. My brain was fine reconciling that then when I was reading the Justice League comics. And my brain is fine reconciling that with Dark Knight. Um, Frank Miller's Dark Knight um, Batman run, probably best not to bother talking too much about Dark Knight 2. Not very good in my opinion, but still, uh, I appreciate Frank taking another whack at it there. Um, and as I kind of very much got into superhero comics, in addition to Green Lantern, one of the things that I got into very early was um, the Teen Titans Um later the Titans. And in particular, one of my favorite characters is Nightwing. And still to this day, a good Nightwing story to me is better than a good Batman story. But Nightwing, as originally the first Robin, every Nightwing story is a Batman story. Nightwing just is a better version of Batman. Not like a better version like he's written better, but as in like, no, I think that Dick Grayson is just actually a better person, partially because he can learn from seeing where his mentor fails. And he can try to overcome that and try to be that much better, but still be very respectful for, um, you know, Bruce and his relationship with Bruce. Um, and so, um, to me, my love of Nightwing is part of my love of the general, you know, the larger, the bat family, if you will. Um, and so even when I'm just like, oh, I'm so sick of Batman content. Yep. But I'm happy to get Nightwing content if it's well-written, like, right? Yeah, I love how you've just quietly slipped in here the hot take, Brent, that uh, Nightwing is better than Batman. This is surely going to be the thing that we get the most correspondence about. And even as you were talking, I was tempted to make a note, cut that from the episode. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna let that stand, and I will, because you know, I'm the one who deals with the correspondence, the emails, and the the messages on Patreon and the, the tweets and so on. But uh, I will, uh, I will take that flack for you, though I may share some of it with you as well. I, I'm happy to engage in any discussion of this on the forums with anyone uh, if they would like. Um, and I am happy to, uh, we can do a little Nightwing book club if people want, because, uh, yeah, uh, Nightwing, um, it, you know, there are some lulls in the run here and there, but still there are some real high points there. But I'm, I'm glad to hear, how, you know, how you got into Batman or where Batman fits in with your love of comics and, and just, you know, love of, of, of stories more broadly speaking, because I, I didn't remember you being a particularly big Batman fan when we were in junior high and high school, where I would have said, yes, as a comics reader, you were into Justice League, you were into, you know, setting aside Sandman, you were into, you know, Justice League, you were into Green Lantern and you were into Swamp Thing. But for me, Batman was how I got into comics, which was all, for me, totally motivated by totally loving the 1989 Tim Burton Batman film. I saw that in the theater, was just riveted, totally hooked, went, maybe not directly from the theater, but certainly within 48 hours, went from the theater to our local comic book shop and bought you know, all of the current issues of Batman, anything that were on the shelf, and then actually became a dedicated reader of the run Legends of the Dark Knight. Um, in fact, I still have almost all of those single issues. They're they're in the garage right now. They will be bequeathed to to Finch at some point, maybe when he's around 10 or 11 or so. And from there, I got into Sandman. So for me, you know, Batman has been super important for me, you know, getting to us doing this podcast together. And I definitely was getting Batman at the time because I think I got the Legends of the Dark Knight and uh, Shadow of the Bat and Detective and Batman. Like those were in the pull list. Um, but I think 
I, I enjoyed a lot of those, but I rarely found excuses to be like, here's something that you wouldn't have thought of in a different way. Like uh, partially probably because I knew you were reading Batman stuff. So I was trying to get you to look at other stuff. Right. Um, and partially <laughs> just because I, you know, Batman is Batman. Like you, you like it or you don't. Um, well, as other stuff, I'll, you know, I have to evangelize a little bit more because it's like, there's this thing that you wouldn't have thought of or you've thought of, but you maybe haven't thought of in the right way. Like they're not just X-Men, but in DC, like the Titans are their own thing and tell some wonderful stories in them. But, um, but yeah, no, a, a lot of the comics I really remember evangelizing particularly were uh, Titans. And uh, I probably went on and on to you about how great some of the standalone Robin issues were when Tim Drake first became Robin, um, the third Robin, um, for those keeping count. It was a great run of a couple limited series of Tim Drake as Robin, where it's just like, oh, this is uh, Nightwing is the best Batman. Uh, Robin is the uh, Tim Drake is the best Robin, probably. Wow, you're just you're just trying to add to my workload this week, Brent. But uh, <laughs> that's that's all right. But I do think that you know now that we are are kind of waxing about our own personal histories with Batman, we can start to wrap this episode up. I'll say a few things here before we do that, which is just to say that one, you and I are going to be doing more Batman together. It's going to be a bonus episode that we're doing on Patreon. It's going to be the time that. Batman met Sherlock Holmes. And that's part of the Sherlock Holmes bonus series that we are doing. That's really actually all meant to culminate in us covering Neil Gaiman's A Study in Emerald, his uh, Sherlock Holmes slash Cthulhu mythos uh, pastiche story. We're going to do that as a team up with uh, Brandon, my co-host on Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast. And also, if you would actually just like to hear more Batman talk, you can check out an episode that I did on the Scott Snyder volume, Court of Owls. I did that on my solo show, which is called ATAS, a speculative fiction book club podcast. So those are some places where you know Batman shows up elsewhere on the network if you're interested in checking those things out. But also, I think we have thrown out a number of, of Batman and Batman adjacent uh, suggestions here. If people are interested in those, please do let us know because those definitely can show up on Patreon ballots in the future. Yeah. And as we talked about earlier, when we were talking about Poison Ivy uh, earlier in this episode, uh, for those of you who are interested in hearing more about Jason Woodrew, uh, you can join us over in the patron feed uh, for our discussion of uh, Jason's appearance uh, as the Floronic Man in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run. Yeah, that was so much fun. And uh, spoiler alert, I loved Jason Woodrew so so much. So I was I was excited, really giddily delighted to see his name showing up here as well. But I think on that note, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Next time here, we are going to be getting back to Sandman. I'm very excited about that, even though I have also loved these uh, digressions, this interlude here. It's been super awesome. I mean, it's been great to get these uh, dives into DC superhero comics, but also checking out some of Gaiman's loves as well, and also Gaiman Pro's stories. But we are getting back to Sandman now, and how we're going about this from this point forward is a bit complicated. We talked about that when we wrapped up Season of Mists. We'll talk about it more again on the next episode. For now, what you need to know if you're reading along with us is simply that we are going to be covering Sandman issue 29, which is called Thermidor, and this appears in the volume Fables and Reflections. And until then, pleasant dreams.